Hello, and welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Divini. I'm the lead pastor at Asbury. Thank you for joining us, and we hope that this episode will enrich your walk with Christ, increase your knowledge of the Bible, and maybe even entertain you a little bit as we go. Right now, in the one-year Bible, we are we are reading uh, the book of Lamentations. We're almost done with it, in fact. I, no, we are done with it. We're in Ezekiel now. I'm sorry. I forgot what day it is for a minute there. So you've already read Lamentations, which is a short little book, and now you're in Ezekiel. You're also reading the book of Hebrews. Um, now, I'm going to preach on Hebrews for the next three Sundays. So this week on our podcast, I'm going to focus on these Old Testament books, and because Lamentations is so short, I think I can give you a brief overview of that book, and then we'll dive into Ezekiel. Um, Lamentations is not an easy book, uh, and and here's why. So traditionally, um, the author of Lamentations is believed to be the prophet Jeremiah, and in fact, in some, some Bibles, when you are on the first page of that book, it won't just say Lamentations, it will say the Lamentations of Jeremiah. I'm looking at a Bible right now where it says that at the top, but not all of them do. Some of them will just say Lamentations. It all just depends on uh, the translation and the format and and what the publisher wanted to do. But traditionally, Jeremiah is the author, uh, in part because the author of Lamentations quite clearly witnessed the downfall of Jerusalem. We know Jeremiah witnessed the downfall of Jerusalem. Um, And the whole book, really is a very vivid account of the siege and the fall of the city. Now, it's not interested in recording the details of that, how it actually happened and what the military tactics were and all of those things. It it is telling the human side of the story, the human effect of the siege and fall of Jerusalem. And it's brutal. It's not pleasant. It's not easy reading. In fact, you know, in so the, the chapters 1, 2, and 4 all begin with the word, how. And it's all a question of, oh, how did this happen? How did the Lord allow this, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. Um, sorry, I closed my Bible on accident, and I want to actually read this to you. Because while that word is translated as how, H-O-W, a more accurate rendering of the usage of that word in Hebrew is, oh no. And so here's how it's rendered in the the NIV, right? It says, how deserted lies the city once so full of people. How like a widow is she who once was great among the nations. Now, a more accurate rendering of this, if you wanted to really capture the full meaning of the Hebrew phrases and the idioms that are being used is, oh no, the city once so full of people lies deserted. Oh no, she's like a widow. Or in chapter 2, how the Lord has covered daughter Zion with the cloud of his anger would better be rendered, oh no, the Lord has covered daughter Zion with the cloud of his anger. It's a cry of distress. It's this cry of distress indicating something is horribly, horribly wrong. But while there is sorrow and lament about the past, which is irrecoverable, right? what's done is done, it can't be fixed, and that's where the sorrow and the lament comes from, 
there is also in the middle of that book a bit of hope. And this is where I think we often stumble in the modern world. That hope comes from the judgment of God and the repentance of the people. We often think of judgment and repentance in a negative sense. But that's where hope is found. God's judgment and our repentance can bring about hope. Now, while this book can be difficult to read, it can also be a huge help to us, because even though it's written about specific events, which obviously we have not experienced, there are times in our lives when we need to lament. And praying through the book of Lamentations during dark days can be a source of incredible peace and comfort for us. It would not surprise me if there were a lot of Christians in Ukraine right now who have been praying through the book of Lamentations. But you you don't even have to go that dark or that dangerous. I mean, just even if you've got uh, a loved one battling through uh, a, a potentially fatal health issue, right? Maybe you know someone who is fighting cancer and they seem to be losing despite doing everything right. Maybe praying through the book of Lamentations could be useful for you. Maybe you lost your job and you're in the midst of deep despair. Praying through Lamentations could be useful for you. Because it allows you to express the pain and the anguish in your heart. And it's okay, actually, to do that in our prayers. So, I want to encourage you. You know, it's difficult to read. It's hard to read. There are dark, dark things happening in the book of Lamentations. But sometimes we need to lament. And it's okay to lament, and it's okay to use the words of Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations as your prayer when you are lamenting. So that's Lamentations. And now we're going to move on to Ezekiel. This is, this is one of my favorite books of the Old Testament. I love Ezekiel because he is the weirdest of all the prophets. Um, he has the weirdest visions of all the prophets. And there are some of the prophets, by the way, who their visions are extremely mundane, right? Um, you know, Jeremiah literally sees a vision. Uh, I mean, he goes and he sees a potter sculpting clay, and he he hears the word of the Lord through that, which is very mundane. It's very normal. Nothing mystical is happening there. Um, but Jeremiah is so soaked in the word of God and the presence of God that he sees God in ordinary things like that. When you read the prophet Amos, uh, who's coming up later, he he has these wonderful, remarkable visions that are all drawn from ordinary aspects of everyday life. There's one where he, he, you know, he talks about seeing a crooked wall that has to be torn down to be fixed. And literally what happens is he's walking through town and he sees these construction workers holding a plumb line next to the wall. And the wall is so crooked that the only way to fix it is to tear it down and, and build it again. And it clicks in his mind that, ah, okay, this crooked wall is like the nation of Israel. We have become so crooked and so far off what God wants us to be that the only way for God to fix us is to tear us down and build us again from scratch. And that's how he gets his visions. Ezekiel just sees crazy things. So he's very unique among the prophets. Um, Isaiah only has like one or two of those where he has this bizarre, 
uh, just totally supernatural vision. Ezekiel has like tons of them where he just sees weird, crazy things happening all the time. So much so that people have said, maybe Ezekiel was seeing UFOs or aliens, uh, right? Because he sees like the chariots of fire in the sky and all this stuff. And I think, no, he's seeing angels. And, and maybe it's just the case that people who think they're seeing aliens are actually seeing angels and demons at work and, and that you've got it backwards. But Ezekiel's visions are just wild and crazy. Um, so Ezekiel is, a, he's a prophet, obviously, living uh, among the exiles in Babylon, which, by the way, makes him the only prophet in the exile in Babylon. All the other ones are, are living in Israel or Judah, um, either before or after the exile. Ezekiel's living during the exile, and he's in Babylon, and he is part of the first group of exiles. So you might recall a couple of weeks ago I, I talked about there, there are two exiles, really, that happen. There, there's one where the king of Babylon comes, and instead of conquering the city of Judah, he, he takes the king of Judah and, and like the elites of the city. So the ultra-wealthy, the highly educated, um, the, the basically the the nobility, the rich people, the wealthy people, the people who run the show, he carries them off into exile and installs a puppet king on the throne who will, ten years later, betray the king of Babylon, and that's when the rest of the people are carried off into exile. So Ezekiel is, is part of that first group. He is living in Babylon, but the Jewish people, primarily, most of them, are still in Jerusalem. Uh, the kingdom of Jerusalem, the kingdom of Judah and the, the city of Jerusalem still stand. And he begins writing these prophecies down about five years into his exile. So halfway between the first group of exiles getting carried off and the final fall of Jerusalem. That's when Ezekiel is doing his ministry, or that's when it starts. Um, and he will continue doing that until the fall of Jerusalem. And part of what he's having to do is explain why all this is happening. If you are a Jew living in this day and age, whether you have been carried off to Babylon already or whether you're still in Jerusalem, um, you have seen that the the Davidic king has been removed from the throne after God promised that there would always be a king from the line of David to sit on the throne of Israel. The promised land is about to fall. Uh, Babylon surrounds it and controls it, and it seems inevitable that one day they're just going to come in and conquer it which would mean that the, God, the land that God promised to his people is going to be taken away. And these two things together cause some problems, and people tend to interpret this as either God is abandoning his people, or God, the God of Israel, is being defeated by the gods of Babylon which is exactly how the Babylonians interpret it, by the way. But Ezekiel says, no. This is God's judgment on you for your idolatry. Because even as he is prophesying from Babylon, the Jews in Jerusalem are still practicing idolatry. They are still defiling the temple in Jerusalem. They still haven't learned the lesson. He says, no. Your idolatry is what's causing this, and the Babylonians are God's instrument, even if they don't know it. 
And so he spends a lot of time prophesying that Jerusalem will fall, the city will be destroyed, the people will be carried off in chains, because that's what it's going to take for them to finally understand the consequences of their idolatry. That's what it will take for them to finally understand that they are the ones who have broken their covenant. And it's easy for us to cast judgment on them as foolish or stubborn people who simply couldn't see reality right in front of them, but we should be careful lest we fall into the same trap. All too often, we have to learn lessons the hard way just as they do. Think of the extreme measures God has to go to in order to convince them that they are committing acts of evil. And then recognize that you might be just as stubborn as they are, even if you don't realize it. Something for us to pray about, each of us. But like all the prophets, Ezekiel does not only tell of judgment and despair, but also of hope and salvation and his visions that he has of, of God's hope and salvation for his people are some of the most profound, incredible, beautiful visions in the Bible. So I'm going to read one. I'm going to read two, but I'm going to start with this one, this one in chapter 37 of Ezekiel, which you won't read for a little while, but at least now you'll know what's coming. So in chapter 37, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, 
and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Love this this vision that he has. The valley of dry bones, and he prophesies to them, and the Lord clothes them in flesh and skin and puts the breath of life back into them and they live again. Now Ezekiel's understanding of his prophecy was that God was speaking to the people of Israel living in exile in Babylon and telling them, you will be restored to the land that I promise you. You will go back. But obviously there is another layer of meaning here about the resurrection that is to come, that God will will raise the dead from their graves and restore them to life. So many Old Testament prophecies work this way where there's, there's multiple levels of meaning. There is the prophecy directly to the people of Israel living in their world, dealing with their specific problem. But there is also the promise to future generations about what God will do. About how he will save us in the long run. And the great hope that we have for our future. Because our God is the God who can make dry bones live again. Love it. Absolutely beautiful. But there's a better one in Ezekiel. There's an even better vision. I'm going to have to Turn to it. So in Ezekiel chapter 40, Ezekiel gets this amazing vision. And I'm going to have to skip most of it because it's so detailed and it's so long. But we'll, we'll get to all the cool parts. So we'll start in chapter 40, the very first verse. In the 25th year of our exile, 25 years, after the exile begins. At the beginning of the year, on the tenth day of the month, in the fourteenth year after the city was struck down. So remember, Ezekiel is carried off ten years before the final exile. So ten years later, the actual, or in this case, eleven years later, is when the, the city of Jerusalem is actually destroyed completely. So in the fourteenth year, so fourteen years now, All of the people of Jerusalem have been living in Babylon. Fourteen years. This means that now there is an entire generation of Israelites, now called Jews, who have been born in exile and will become adults in exile. On that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me to the city. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city to the south. When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand. And he was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and set your heart upon all that I shall show you. For you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. 
declare all that you see to the house of Israel. And then he goes about and he's measuring like the actual buildings of the temple and the, the which at this point has to be a new temple because the temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed. So he's getting this vision of a, a new temple that is going to be built. And it's massive. And we're going to skip over most of it because it literally takes like three or four chapters to, to get to it. Um, it's this enormous, stunning temple. And there's going to be people living in it and, and a prince who's going to rule over it. And then we skip ahead into chapter 47. So actually it takes seven chapters just to describe this this temple and what's going to happen with it because it's so massive and it's so glorious and it's so beautiful. And then in chapter 47, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold. From below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water. And it was ankle deep. Again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. And he measured a thousand again and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. And he measured, measured a thousand again, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea where the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea from Engedi to Enaglaim. It will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea, but its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. And on the banks of both sides of the river there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for healing. So he has this vision of this of the temple, and it, and it will be this renewed temple, and it will actually be bigger and grander and more amazing than the temple was originally. And then this vision of the water of life flowing out of the temple in an ever-growing, ever-deepening stream until it hits the Arabah, the Dead Sea, and where the water of life hits the dead waters, it makes them fresh and fills them with life. 
And because it is the water of life, the trees on both sides produce fruit all year round. They produce food and they produce healing. It's this wonderful vision, not of what God will do for the people of Israel in Ezekiel's lifetime, but ultimately, this is a vision of what God will do when Jesus comes back. This vision is for us. This vision is our future. That one day Jesus will return and the river of the water of life will flow throughout the world and wherever it touches the dead waters, it will bring freshness and life. This vision is our hope. This is what God promises to do in our future. And it's visions like this that make it so important for us to read and understand the Old Testament. Because this is how we understand the great hope that we have for the future, that 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 it will be like the temple has been restored and God's presence will be with us again and the river of life will flow out so strongly that the whole world will be changed. But it's not just a vision of our future, it's a vision of our present. Jesus is the water of life. He flows into us and he wants to flow through us into the world and wherever we direct the flow of the water of life. We will make the world fresh and living. We will provide food and healing for the nations. So while, again, every, every vision in the Old Testament prophets just has multiple layers. So again, while you've got this vision that speaks to our ultimate future, you also have a vision that speaks to the present. We are this new temple. More accurately, Jesus is the new temple. He consistently identifies himself as the new temple in the Gospels. Jesus is the new temple which Ezekiel spoke of and the water of life flows out of him. And it becomes deeper and wider the more it flows because the more it flows, the more people it is flowing through. We contribute to the depth and the width of the river of life. And everywhere the water touches, it brings life and nourishment and healing. That's our role in the world. Not just to be part of the river of life, but to help spread the current, to deepen the floodwaters, to carry the water all the way into the places of death and darkness to bring the light and the life of God. That's Ezekiel. That's Lamentations. I love these books. I love the depth and the richness 
of the thought of these prophets and the visions that they have. Don't take them for granted. Don't rush through them. Let them soak into you. So that you will understand on a deep, intuitive level. That in the midst of darkness there is hope. In the midst of death there is life. That God never leaves us on a bad note. But that God always promises salvation and healing and restoration. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.